Amen, and thank you, praise team. I had originally planned to spend a little bit of time this week included in the Old Testament, as I did last week, really before we move into our study of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, but I found myself this week drawn to a text of the New Testament that I want to share with you, so would you please turn with me to the book of Philippians chapter 2. There's something deeply unsettling, to say the least, about witnessing a church that is divided. Seeing factions within a church who are pushing and, and pulling to have their way at the expense of others is deeply unsettling, but sadly it is not all too uncommon. Perhaps you've witnessed this personally, perhaps even as I share that, things come to mind that you've experienced before. I've shared my own experience uh, at least once at a church uh, that was truly torn in two, completely divided when I was first starting out in ministry, serving in youth ministry, had, had no idea what to expect or what any of this meant. It was a very disillusioning time. I watched one faction in the church force out the pastor in a very ugly way, and then thus another part left with him and truly divided this church almost essentially right in two. But as ugly as it is to see a church divided, how beautiful it is to see a church that is united in heart and in mind. How refreshing it is to witness a church that has linked arms together to do the Lord's work in His name. What a blessing it is to see a church in joyful fellowship together in the presence of our Lord, even as we just worship together. In the opening chapter of Philippians, the Apostle Paul has just shared how much joy this church in modern-day Greece, in the city of Philippi, how much joy this church has brought to him. He's, he's highlighted their sincere love, their faithfulness, their devotion to the mission to do the Lord's work. And we can imagine Paul, I mean, truly smiling as he pins these words. He, he loves the Philippian church. The tone of this letter is remarkably different from some of Paul's other letters, remarkably different from 1 Corinthians, even from a letter like Galatians. Already having been blessed by the Philippians, he gives them now this exhortation. And I've titled this message, Of the Same Mind. Let's read the text together, Philippians 2, beginning in verse 1. So, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit... Any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus." who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Paul called the Philippian church to pursue unity through the means of love and humility. 
as modeled perfectly in the life of Jesus Christ. There are really three parts to this exhortation. Here's number one. Unity is our goal. Paul explains that these words are meant to be a source of encouragement and comfort. He lays that out pretty plainly in verse 1. And actually, this isn't even just for this passage alone, but really for the letter as a whole. Paul has this in mind. A simple goal to strengthen their bond of unity and their love for one another in Jesus Christ. I mean, truly, if we step back, what could be more desirable for the church? We often think about what what is the church great and what makes a church compelling. What could be more desirable than this goal here? Paul is going to show us that Christ alone is the basis for this bond. There is already a sense of of joy in their fellowship. This is is not a dysfunctional church in Philippi. But Paul knows that challenges inevitably arise. I mean, even in an otherwise healthy church, as we would see here. One commentator says that Paul makes this appeal, quote, because friendships are fragile and even close friendships are all too easily divided by pride, selfishness, and preoccupation with personal interests. Now imagine, already noting that, imagine throw in a a tense political climate, a pandemic, and you've got an alarming opportunity for the adversary to sow division in the church. He he lives, the adversary lives to undermine God's work. We must be on guard that we don't let Satan gain a foothold in our fellowship by giving into carnal impulses. John Calvin warns that division is Satan's favorite tool, his favorite weapon against the church. And that has not changed in 500 years or 2,000 years. Paul calls them to be, look at at the text, of the same mind. Look back at verse 2. Complete my joy, he says, by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. I mean, really, we could summarize the whole passage just just by looking at these words here in this one verse. This is his, his thesis. Be united together in mind and in heart, Paul says, and everything else is secondary. Do you pray for the unity of our church? Especially in these strange times that we're in. I mean, in some way, we're facing challenges, and we, I keep saying this week after week, and I know you hear it elsewhere as well. In some ways, we're, we're facing challenges that could not have even been anticipated a year ago. That comes up every time I speak to another pastor. But yet, in another way, there is nothing new under the sun. Underneath it all, these things are fundamentally the same that have faced churches for two millennia. In spiritual for, uh, sense, in spiritual terms, the, the same forces are at work. And thus the solution is all the more relevant as we look to the New Testament. The Philippian church was a relatively healthy church. But Paul knew that there were some tensions developing. And he, he actually brings them up with some, with some specificity. Elsewhere in the letter, if we look to really the latter part of the letter, he names names even. In chapter 4, he brings up two church members who seem to have been in some conflict. We don't know the nature of the conflict, but he's going to name their names here. In chapter 4, verse 2, he he calls them to come together in the name of Christ. He says this, I plead with Euodia and I plead with Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. Citing using this exact same language 
that he uses in chapter 2 here. If, if Paul were writing to Starnes Cove Baptist Church in 2021, would any of you need to hear this admonition of Syndicate and Euodia? Would any of you need to take a step to restore fellowship with a brother or sister? This really should not be too far-fetched from us. Again, not much has changed when we think about human nature. We can't let pride stand in the way if there is something in the church that needs to be addressed. We hope that apathy would never stand in the way, but we cannot let pride, Paul is going to say. Paul calls us to be of the same mind. He uses the language of being in one accord. Uh, just a, two, maybe three weeks ago, uh, it was late in the afternoon, I was getting uh, ready to leave and go home for the day, and uh, a man had shown up at the church, and Linda was able to introduce him, actually. Uh, he's our piano tuner. And uh, I got to meet him and chat with him a little bit. He, you know, apparently has tuned our piano for years. He comes once a year, twice a year, ideally. He said, you know, it's been a little while since I've been here. He said, I, I bet Kathy can tell the difference. It's been a little while since I've been here. He's been so busy with other things going on during the pandemic. When he was done, I had to listen to him. This guy's working on this piano for a couple hours. I ended up staying a little bit later and getting to hear him. And when he was done, every note was precisely on point. And now when it's played, as you hear this morning, when it's put into action, all this work that he's done to tune it to bring everything into harmony, each note comes together in harmony to produce beautiful music. If he had mistuned even one of these notes, two of these notes, anyone with an ear for music would have heard it. Maybe even people without an ear for music if it's bad enough. How much worse when a piano was left neglected for a significant period of time? I remember my mother bought an old piano one time and we put it in our side room of our house to be able to play and it was so woefully out of tune. You just, you couldn't play it. It was so awful. I mean, it was still capable of producing sound, you know, but it was not a beautiful sound. Paul challenges them to pursue harmony in their fellowship. Let everything be as it should be. Let everything be tuned together, so to speak. This must be our goal as a church. And it's something that has to be strived after. It's not something that happens automatically, all the more so in these days. But it would be helpful to have kind of a more practical application from Paul. What is this actually supposed to look like? Paul is going to confront the cause of the disunity in the church and offer some clear instructions as they pursue unity. So if unity is our goal, then that leads us to number two, Love and humility are our means. If believers are going to be of one mind, Paul is going to say that there is something that they have to overcome here. Something that is a challenge for all of us. Paul declares that that selfish ambition has no place in the church. Look at verse 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. Paul's concern here is very simple. It's pride. It's, it's the mindset that has an exalted view of one's own importance. And as I said, pride is, is not just a liability for one class of people. It is as common as sin itself. And all of us can be susceptible to it if we're not careful. The book of Proverbs really interestingly anticipates Paul's point here. In Proverbs 13, verse 10, it says, Where there is strife, there is pride. Elsewhere in Proverbs, it tells us what God thinks of pride. 
It says the Lord detests all the proud of heart. That's really strong language. As we heard on Wednesday night, just this last week, in our study in Revelation, sometimes we have a faulty view of this or that sin's severity. I think we commonly discount the severity of pride, both before the Lord and just in the practical sense, because case in point in this context, pride destroys, pride divides. Paul thinks, or he really is going to link another word here with pride in verse 3 at the end, the ESV, and most modern translations are going to call it conceit. The old King James actually captures something, it calls it vainglory. Sounds archaic, but perhaps you, you get the idea here. Vainglory. It's a close synonym of pride, but what it does is it brings out the vanity, the, the emptiness of pride, the foolishness even of pride. Paul urges the Philippians to root out pride from within themselves. Pride will always be a threat to unity because the proud person privileges himself or herself above others at the expense of others. Pride, on one hand, is a liability for all of us. That The flesh is driven by pride. It leads to a whole host of other sins. But church, I mean, I'm captured by this, you know, as I'm going through this this week. How can a Christian be proud? A Christian should know better than anyone how needy he or she is and how gracious and merciful is our God. How can we be proud when we stand at the foot of the cross gazing up at our bleeding Savior? How can we in that context puff up our chest? How can we insist upon our own way and our our own position when we ultimately stand with empty hands before God? We have nothing to offer Him. We are fully dependent on God's grace for every good thing. How then do we let pride in? In the end, pride, the prideful heart seeks to to claim glory for itself, ultimately against God, the glory that belongs to God alone. And so instead, the Holy Spirit, through the Apostle Paul, is going to call us to embrace humility. In verses 3 and 4, he says, instead of selfishness, and, and thus here, the solution to selfishness is to count others, he says, as more significant than ourselves. And this is as countercultural as anything that the Apostle Paul says in the New Testament. The old King James says, and I, I was drawn, I, I'm always reading multiple translations and the original languages I'm studying. There are some things that the old that King James captures well. Here in this part it says, In lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than themselves. Do you get the, the idea here? This, this is not the way that the world thinks. This runs counter to our fallen instincts as well. I mean, our our instincts and our flesh are to look out for number one. It's about me, my desires, my preferences. I mentioned before that uh, we we don't have to teach children to be selfish, do we? It comes quite naturally to them. We don't have to to teach them that. What we do, we have to labor with them to teach them to share. We have to labor with them to respect others and even repeatedly. This is the corrupting influence of original sin that affects all of us. We, we have to recognize that and reckon with that. This was equally countercultural when Paul wrote this 2,000 years ago. 
Humility was not valued in the Greco-Roman world. And again, this is, this is in Greece. Would have been probably a mixed church of Gentiles and Jews, but it's in Greece. Humility seemed to encourage weakness, the Greeks thought. Well, why would that be a virtue? Humility was certainly not valued. But Paul is going to lift up Jesus as our model for humility. And Jesus was anything but weak. There's a a strength in humility that the world struggles to see in, in the sinful mind that we as Christians must see. Look back at verse 4 with me. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Paul recognizes that we naturally have our own agendas. In the church, it might be our our preferences, uh, a certain way we'd like things to be, or particular things that we'd like to see prioritized above above others. We, We all have our own agendas, our own opinions. But the Bible teaches us that when we come together as a church, we learn to be considerate of one another. And there are so many hosts of ways that we could look at this, whether it's music preferences, whether it's a type of a building, whether it's safety precautions that we're dealing with now. The Bible calls us to be considerate of our brothers and sisters in Christ that make up the local body. Think of all the ways that the scriptures instruct us in this way. I mean, we could just list, all morning we could go through this, to, to love one another to build up one another, to bear with one another, to to bear one another's burdens even, to to forgive one another. All these ways that the New Testament instructs instructs us in how we should, should treat one another in the local church. Paul isn't calling for some sort of strange self neglect, but he's calling us to new orientation toward others that is counter cultural and and counter intuitive to us sometimes. As destructive as pride is, humility is a game changer. That the unity of our church is is in your hands. It's in my hands. We can't point at anyone else. It's in each and every one of our hands. It's up to each and every one of us to pursue this. When we fail to consider others, as Paul says, dysfunction will be the natural consequence. This is true in the church, but it's true in other relationships as well. Just think about it for a moment. I mean, have you ever been in a one-sided friendship? Maybe you have. Or one person gives all the effort and the other person seems to receive all of the benefits. Likewise, in the church, if if we lack genuine love for one another, dysfunction will result. If we lack humility, we'll we'll miss the blessing of authentic fellowship that God, that Christ has designed for the church. Let's resolve together before God, before one another, to pursue unity, to pursue love and humility, to arrive at unity. If ever there was a time to reaffirm it, now is the time. If unity is our goal and love and humility are our means, Paul has something really powerful to say in conclusion. That leads us to number three. Jesus is our example. As with so many aspects of our faith, Jesus is our example in love and in humility. In verse 5, he says, think the same way that Christ did. In Jesus, God the Son took on human flesh. Paul's going to really rehearse really these deep theological ideas here. It's important that you understand that Jesus became man in every single way yet without sin. 
He was, he was tempted in every way that we are. He grew hungry as we do. He grew tired the way that we do. He grew irritated the way that we do, the way that we do in every way. He's fully human. It was as a genuine human being that Jesus lived the perfect life, setting this example for us. Paul reminds us of an important point here. He says if, if anyone had the right to sort of throw his weight around, it was Jesus. I mean, really, think about it. Look, look back at verse 6. He uh, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Jesus took the form of a servant, even though he was God. In verse 6, Paul says that that Jesus was in the form of God. This explains that he was in full possession of the divine nature. Fully God. And he never ceased to be fully God. During the incarnation, he never ceased to be the eternal God of the universe. John Calvin puts it in a really succinct way. He says, Christ indeed could not divest himself of Godhead, but he kept it concealed for a time. He laid aside his glory in view of men, not by lessening it, but by concealing it. He took the form of a servant. Jesus masked his full glory so that he could live in humility among us. Usually when when people find out that I live in Asheville, friends that I have in different places, the first thing they think of is Biltmore. And we often try to use that to lure people to come and visit us, friends and family. Oh, we'll, we'll take you to the Biltmore. And when you go, it is a magnificent place, isn't it? I mean, there's a whole reason that Asheville basically grew up around it. It was, it was a mainstay, and in so many ways, of course, becoming a tourist attraction and so on. It is magnificent. There's a grandeur to the estate, thinking about the house itself even. It just it, it boggles the mind. You could just spend all day looking at its beauty, the architecture, and all the gardens laid out. Now, do this with me. This is just sort of an exercise. Think of George Vanderbilt. The baron of the estate who built it in the 1890s. A man who would have been a multi-billionaire by today's standards. Think of George Vanderbilt if you can. Serving in a soot-filled and smoky kitchen along with the other servants. Can you picture that? Think of George Vanderbilt in his expensive Italian imported suit down on his knees pulling weeds around the mansion. Almost as comical, isn't it? Try to imagine it for a moment. Imagine him in the North Carolina summer, humid sun, washing the clothes before there was laundry machines, scrubbing and washing the clothes, sweat running down his face, messing up his beautiful little tie. Think about that for a moment, and it would not even begin to do justice to the humility that the eternal Son of God demonstrated when he took on human flesh. Wouldn't even begin Jesus came, took on human flesh, and he came to give his life as a ransom for sinners. There is not and will never be a greater example of humility in the universe. Jesus epitomized the humility and love that God calls us to. He laid down his own prerogatives. He considered others before he considered himself, as as Paul says, even to the point of death, death on a cross. In verse 9, because Jesus' perfect faithfulness, 
The Father exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. It is good for us to focus on the humility of Christ. We've been lingering on that. But notice how Paul concludes. He concludes by noting not his humility, but his exaltation. Look at verse 10. So that in the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. To the glory of God. Christ's humble obedience was the basis of his exaltation. We must see this connection here. What a profound thing it is. Let's look to the example of Jesus as we strive to have harmony and to have unity within our church. Let's look to Jesus' example of love that he's shown to us. If we have unity as a church, it, it will be on the basis of our shared faith and in faithful obedience to our Lord and King. I'd like to take some time just to have an invitation privately where we are, a time of response. However the Lord would lead you, you need to repent of pride. You need to repent of, of in some ways, letting apathy disregard the unity of the church. Whatever it is, all of us can pray together that God would would cultivate unity and joy and ultimately like-mindedness as we look forward to our mission. Would you bow your heads with me and have a time of private response? Our Lord in heaven, I thank you for this church. I thank you for the brothers and sisters that are here, that you have brought together, that you have allowed me to serve. Lord, I pray that you would, God, help us to look to the example of Christ, his love, his humility. And Lord, that we would pursue unity together as a church, actively, consciously, Lord, pursuing it. And Lord, I pray that you would bless, that you would lead us, Lord, through these strange times, coming out on the other side only stronger, only more united, only more devoted to the mission. We glorify you, Lord. You are good. You are glorious. Our Lord, I pray your blessing over each and every one who's here. In Jesus Christ's name, amen.